Thank you very much, Eric, for your kind words. I thought for a moment I had two mothers. Um, <laughs> so thank you all very much for, for coming. Um, demographic engineering. Now, I'm going to talk, as Eric said, for 35 or so minutes about this strangely named topic. Um, not a term I invented, I should say. There is a literature on demographic engineering, but not a very developed one, which I think is a very fortuitous area to uh, enter academically. You really want to find a topic that you're not making up the vocabulary from scratch, but at the same time, so there's something out there, but at the same time, not very much. So demographic engineering, I'm going to divide my talk into two sections. The first will be the theory, and the second, the practice. And you'll be pleased to know the theory will be brief, the practice will be slightly more lengthy. Um, the theory will cover the what, the why, and the how. So what is demographic engineering? Why does it happen? And how does it happen? What methodologies are followed? What policies are followed? What strategies are followed? How does the thing work? So that will be the theoretical part. And the practical part will be to look at um, where it happens and to what effect. Um, for that, I will take um, four cases which are covered in my book, Sri Lanka, uh, Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, and the United States of America. And I will look at how demographic engineering has worked in those four places. So first, the theory, the what, the why, and the how. And secondly, the practice, um, where and to what effect. So let's start with a what. Um, I think you can pretty much define demographic engineering as the intentional manipulation of population numbers in an ethnic conflict to strengthen one side against the other. I'll just repeat that because it is important that, um, that we remember it. The intentional manipulation of population numbers in an ethnic conflict to strengthen one side against the other. Um, so I think that deals with the what pretty much. We can deal fairly swiftly, too, with the why. So why would anybody engage in this, uh, these kind of strategies? And I think there are really two explanations for this. The first is a traditional one, which has always applied and uh, still does. And the second is a more recent one, by which I mean something that's been of increasing importance over the last 200 years. The uh, traditional explanation of why people engage in demographic engineering is simple boots on the ground. In a, demogra in a, demo in a demographic conflict, between, in, in an conf ethnic conflict between two groups, uh, there is no doubt there is an advantage in having uh, the greater numbers. Now, numbers do not always win battles. One side can be out-strategized. Uh, one side can have the greater technology. And history is replete with examples of relatively small groups controlling relatively large ones, of which Western imperialism and its history of the last two, three hundred years would be a good case. So that's not to say that numbers are everything, but all other things being equal, it is an advantage in a conflict, in an ethnic conflict, to have the greater numbers. Uh, whether, it's, whether that results in more men on the battlefield or more youths on the street, it can play out in different ways. But numbers are one factor and a relatively important factor. The second reason why people engage in demographic engineering is that since the French Revolution and increasingly throughout the world, uh, we have waves of democracy. This itself is an area of, of, of debate. How democratic is the world? Is it moving in an endlessly democratic direction? But without doubt, the world is a more democratic place than it was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, it was more than it was 200 years ago. And what that means is to have any kind of internal legitimacy or indeed legitimacy on the world stage, a regime needs 
some kind of uh, uh, democratic legitimacy which means uh, greater numbers. And particularly where there is an ethnic conflict and where party politics is of an ethnic uh, nature, which it is in many places, having larger numbers is an advantage at the ballot box and therefore in taking and, and retaining power. And so unsurprisingly, the examples of a, a small ethnic group controlling a larger ethnic group have become more and more unusual over time with the decline of Western empires. And to cite a couple of examples from the last 20 years, we've seen in South Africa white control ending. And more recently in Syria, what could be argued to be a, uh, an Alawite state, a minority control, or in Iraq, a, a Sunni control of a, a Shia majority. It's harder and harder for uh, minority groups to control majority groups. And therefore, it makes more and more sense, if you want to be in control, to be in the majority. And that is why people engage in demographic engineering. So, so much for the what and the why. How do people engage in demographic engineering, governments, societies? And here I'd like to introduce you to the concept of hard demographic engineering and soft demographic engineering. By hard demographic engineering, I suppose we're talking about the obvious stuff. It's changing the population balance by directly impacting demography. And that involves essentially the creation, the destruction, and the movement of peoples. So uh, the creation of people obviously is about fertility policies, uh, and they need to be discriminatory. They need to advantage one group over another. It's no use if you're in an ethnic conflict having everybody have more babies or everybody have fewer babies. In the long run, you need to have one group having more relative to the other. Uh, so far as deaths are concerned, of course, ultimately genocide could be a case of demographic engineering. And migration, of course, the inward and outward movement of people can significantly affect the demographic balance. So these are the three... Um, tools of hard demographic engineering, changing the population by using the, the, the levers of demography. To give you a very brief example, and I'll obviously be giving more detailed examples when we come to the case studies. Um, you think about Romania under Ceausescu. It was a communist regime, but it was also a nationalist regime and a very ethno-nationalist regime with a very strong sense of Romanianness and a desire to exert Romanianness within the state over a, a, a state which had minorities such as Jews, Germans, and Romanese. Now, what did Ceausescu do therefore? Well, he made birth control extremely difficult to get hold of, but there is anecdotal evidence that it was easier to get hold of if you were a Hungarian and not a Romanian. Uh, he prevented people leaving the country, but if you were a German or a Jew, it was fairly easy to get out. And therefore, you could look at Ceausescu's policies in the round, and he's not one of my case studies, but you could say there is a, a dictator who, with an ethno-national agenda to keep Romanian extremely Romania, uh, Romania extremely Romanian, engaged in all three of the levers of hard demographic engineering. So that's the obvious stuff. Now, soft demographic engineering is an attempt to change the demography through non-demographic means. And this essentially means moving the identity or political boundaries. It doesn't involve fertility. It doesn't involve mortality. It doesn't involve migration. Nobody moves, and nobody uh, additional uh, or marginal gets born or dies. But rather, it's about defining the entity of the state through its boundaries, or defining the identities of people. 
And to give you a couple of examples of this, and again, we'll go into it in much more detail when we come to the case studies. Um, if you think about the Cypriot ethnic conflict between Greeks and, and Turks, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of talk about should Cyprus become part of Greece. And you could argue that the Greek Cypriots would have liked to have been part of a state which would have been a greater Greece, if you like, in which they were an overwhelming minor, a majority. And the Turks specifically didn't want to be part of a state in which they were a tiny minority. And therefore, although there are other factors at play, uh, the, the, you could see the attempt to join Cyprus to Greece and then the uh, breakaway by, by the Turkey in the, and, uh, Turkish Cypriots in the north and the invasion by Turkey as a form of demographic engineering. How you draw the boundaries of the territory has an impact on the uh, demographic balance and population balance within a territory. So that's one form of soft demographic engineering. Nobody born, nobody killed, nobody moved, just the boundaries shifted. Another example would be a shift in identity. Uh, we, we all have identities. None of us is born with a, an ethnic identity stamped on our arm. And people have more than one identity, and identity shifts over time. And the attempts can be made to either categorize people in a particular way or genuinely to convince people that they have a particular identity in a manner that has an impact on the numbers. And again, using a, a, an example, and again, we'll go into it in more detail when we come to the practical side, um, in 19th century Bosnia, occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there were a lot of peasants of Christian Orthodox religion who, like many of the peasants in Central and Eastern Europe at the time, had no strong sense of national identity. And there was clearly a movement in the Orthodox Church to persuade people that if you were living in Bosnia and you were an Orthodox Christian, you were a Serb. And by doing this, the idea was that the claims of Serbia on Bosnia would would be greater, because you'd actually say that at that point there was a Serbian majority in Bosnia. But how do you define what a Serb is? Uh, that was the question, and that was uh, what the Serbian Nationalist Orthodox Church was engaged in doing to some extent. Lots of other factors at work as well, um, but the way that people are actually identified or the way that they're classified in censuses can also be a very important method of um, changing the demographic balance. So I think we've answered the what. We've answered the uh, why, and we've answered the how. The how is the hard and the soft, two different ways. And they can be political, they can be top-down, they can be social, they can be bottom-up. So uh, that, I think, gives us an outline of what demographic engineering is. And now I'd like to move on to talk about four case studies that I look at in my book. Uh, all cases in a very different um, ethnic conflicts. And in fact, uh, I purposely looked for conflicts in different continents, conflicts which were, some of which were relatively new and some of which were perennial, uh, and, and conflicts of very different natures uh, to test the theory and to see whether we can really see demographic engineering, this purposeful and intentional uh, effort to change the demographic balance in a, in a territory and among a population as something that actually helps us explain what was going on in history and ultimately can help us understand what's going on in the world today. So to start with Sri Lanka, generally people, laymen, would say, well, there are Tamils and there are Sinhalese in Sri Lanka. In fact, the story is much more complicated than that. Um, in Sri Lanka, the, uh, so the Sinhalese, which are a majority group, uh, could be seen to have been two quite distinct groups back in the 19th century. And in fact, under the British, the census 
distinguished between Kandyans in the high country and low country Sinhalese. Low country Sinhalese, predominantly Buddhist, but had had a lot of exposure to Western Europeans, to Portuguese, to um, Dutch and British colonialists since the early 16th century, had a relatively large Christian element. High country Kandyan Sinhalese uh, only really came into contact with the West in the 19th, early 19th century, and therefore there were real differences between the two. And it can be argued that um, the efforts post-independence of the leadership of the country were specifically to merge these two groups together. Now, all the way back in, um, uh, back in uh, the 1920s and 30s, the um, first federalist movement in Sri Lanka was not actually among Tamils. It was among high country Kandyans who did not like the idea of uh, people of the low country entering the mountainous area of central southern Sri Lanka and try to break away. And yet there was an intention after the independence, uh, with, after independence was achieved to uh, reduce these differences and to create a consolidated bloc which could uh, be effective uh, politically. And I'd like to quote here the words of um, one of uh, Sri Lanka's earliest and most... Um, effective Prime Ministers, Bandranayaka, who said, we saw differences among our own people, and therefore we felt we should achieve unity. The differences that exist between two sections of the Sinhalese, the low country and up country Sinhalese, is now fast disappearing. Is it not a desirable thing that this is being achieved? And without going into any detail here, I think we can point out that certain things were going on which might have caused these group, two groups to merge anyway, but they equally might have gone in their different ways. But the common identity of the Sinhalese was fostered by the, by the state. In contrast, we can look at the Tamils in Sri Lanka and see that as a failed case of consolidating an identity. So the Tamils in Sri Lanka, as perhaps some of you know, uh, in the north, in, in Jaffna, uh, have been there for time immemorial. And then large numbers of Tamils were brought in by the British in the 19th century to work the tea plantations in the hill country. Very different people, very different caste. Uh, the groups were never really effectively linked. Equally, there is a fairly large Muslim community in Sri Lanka, overwhelmingly Tamil-speaking. And if you are a Tamil in Tamil Nadu in southern India, you say, I'm a Muslim, but I'm a Tamil. But if you are a Tamil in Sri Lanka, you do not identify as a Tamil. And uh, there's a long history of that, but effectively, the Tamil leadership in Sri Lanka tried to co-opt the Muslims in the, it, really from the end of the 19th century. And their reasons for doing this were, uh, in part, to claim larger numbers and therefore to claim more uh, representation on the early democratic uh, institutions which were established in Sri Lanka. And for various reasons, this did not succeed. So I think if today we have a solid 75% majority uh, Sinhalese uh, identity in Sri Lanka, it is to some extent the success of demographic engineering on the part of the Sinhalese and the failure on the part of the Tamils. So much for soft demographic engineering in Sri Lanka. When it comes to hard demographic engineering, there are also cases of this. So um, the aspirations of the Tamil separatists in, in Sri Lanka was to create a territory in the north and on the east coast. In the whole area, in the area as a whole, the Tamils predominated. But uh, in the east, it was much more mixed. In the north, they were the solid majority. In the east, which was less populated, they were more mixed. And there is evidence that the state surreptitiously sponsored settlement of Sinhalese people from the south, in particular areas in the east, to block any chance of a contiguous 
Tamil state in northern and eastern Sri Lanka. And uh, the government said, no, no, of course this isn't the case. We are moving people from the heavily populated south, the overpopulated south, to the virgin lands of the east, which we can now once again um, irrigate. Uh, but in fact, as was pointed out, there was no attempt by the government to move people from the equally overcrowded north, from the Tamil areas, into these areas. And some of these provinces, such as Polonarua, have had a huge change, a great shift in their demography um, and in the demographic balance uh, in favour of the Sinhalese in strategic places. And finally, in the case of Sri Lanka, uh, a very explicit case of demographic engineering to do with migration. <coughs> I mentioned earlier that the Indian Tamils had come in in the 19th century to work the tea plantations, the, and they were actually given voting rights by the British under the Donamore Commission in the 1920s. The independent uh, government of Sri Lanka wanted nothing to do with them, would not recognize them as citizens, strip them of their citizenship, and with the collaboration of the Indian government, in contrast to the Indian government's attitude, say, in East Africa, uh, resettled many in southern India. So that today, whereas they were once 17% of the population, the Indian Tamils are but 5% of the population, despite it would appear having a very similar fertility rate. So overall, if you look at what these four things have done in Sri Lanka, these four cases of demographic <coughs> engineering, I think you can say that uh, however history may have been different without them, it's hard to see how without a consolidated Sinhalese identity, a fragmented Tamil identity, and the repatriation of large numbers of uh, Indian Tamils back to India, without this, that we would have ended up with the triumph of the Sinhalese ethnic state, which I think we broadly have in Sri Lanka today. So I think uh, demographic engineering ha has, has been very significant there. Now, in Northern Ireland, again, there is a parallel, which is we think there are Catholics, there are Protestants, and the dispute uh, is around that. In fact, in many ways, it's much more complicated than that. But one way where there's a parallel to Sri Lanka is in the fact that the Northern Ireland Protestants were not one people in 1800. Uh, they were two people. They were people predominantly of Scottish origin and um, non-conformist religion, and they were people of English origin, Anglicans. And these two groups had as much antagonism in the, early 18th, in, in the late 18th and early 19th century as, as they had uh, with regard to the Catholics. By 1914, in contrast, you were able to speak of the Protestant people of Northern Ireland. And I think this is an interesting case because I argue in the book, this is the dog which didn't bark, if you like. This is not a case of demographic engineering. And if we want to understand a phenomenon and test it, we have to have cases where the test fails as well as where it passes um, in the, in the uh, tradition of Popper. So um, why do I argue this? Well, if you look at the forces that drew these two groups together, I think there were three. The first was a response to... Catholic emancipation and the Catholic vote, which meant pressures for home rule. So to some extent, it was an attempt to consolidate in the face of a meaningful large number, a uh, large majority, uh, which hadn't mattered pre-democracy, which gets back to the argument about why people do it. But as Catholics in, in, in Ireland were given the vote it actually ma and, and were pressing for home rule, it actually mattered that you consolidate your identity. So that could possibly be seen as demographic engineering. But more importantly, I think the, the reason these two groups came together was, first of all, the removal of disabilities against nonconformists. Many things nonconformists couldn't do in the, early 18th, in the early 19th century, but by the early 20th century they could. And so a lot of the source of antagonism had gone, and that's nothing to do with Northern Ireland. That was British policy. Uh, that was the progress of civil rights and democracy in the UK. 
And thirdly, I think they had strong economic interests, um, whether they were landowners looking to the British state to support their land ownership or whether they were industrialists or industrial workers selling into the, um, uh, the, the, the British Empire. Uh, there was strong economic interest that drove these groups together and wanted them to keep out of home rule. So I would say that the emergence of the Protestant people in Northern Ireland, unlike the Sinhalese, as a single entity, was not a case of demographic engineering. But that is not to say that demographic engineering did not take place, has not taken place in Northern Ireland. And one obvious case of it is the creation of the six-county Northern Ireland that we know. Now, I've looked at the cabinet uh, records of, uh, on the subject of partition, I've also looked at the uh, Unionist uh, Party discussions on the subject. And many would have liked a nine-county Ulster. That was the traditional Ulster, particularly the Protestant people in the three counties. And yet the decision was taken to have a six-county Ulster. And I would argue, it's very clear from the record, that that was essentially a demographic decision. You look at the population of the nine counties, there was going to be Stormont, there was going to be a parliament. You could not control the territory with nine counties, it would be very close to 50-50, whereas with six counties, a Protestant majority of two to one, and therefore a Protestant state, was indeed a possibility. So Northern Irish partition, I would argue, was largely a demographic event, an ex example of soft demographic engineering. But we also have cases of hard demographic engineering in Northern Ireland, and I would cite two. The first is the fertility rate among the Catholics from the 50s to, say, the early 90s. Now, why do people have family sizes of a particular, uh, particular size? Very hard to know precisely what motivates people. But when you look at the social level, certain things can be seen. And I think if you are to say that it is a demographic engineering fertility rate, an, an, a fertility rate that is driven by the conflict, there are really two ways you can make your case. The first is to compare the fertility rate of that group with that of other groups which are similar. And the second is to look at the exhortations and the statements of the political leadership. If we look at the uh, birth rate, the fertility rate of Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we find we cannot explain their high fertility rate because of their Catholicism, because it was significantly higher than the fertility rate of Catholics elsewhere in um, Europe and North America. If we say, well, OK, it was their Irishness. A lot of work has been done at looking at specific socioeconomic groups and, and uh, controlling for socioeconomic difference. And nevertheless, the Northern Irish Catholic fertility rate comes out as significantly higher. Now, it has fallen. It's definitely converged with the Protestant rate. But I would argue its, it's fall was delayed. And there is a good reason to think that that was to do with the specific uh, I, sense of the, the Northern Irish Catholics as a minority wishing to increase their power. And that's certainly something which you can see in the policies and the exhortations of Sinn Féin, who have always claimed that they would reach a united Ireland through the rooms and cradles of the nationalist population, which, by the way, they won't, partly because, indeed, the, the Catholic fertility rate has come down, and partly because they have conveniently forgotten the fact that there have always been a very large number, and now an extremely large number, of people of Catholic origin in Northern Ireland who do not want to be part of the Republic. But that's by the by. The other way in which I would say that demographic engineering has worked in Northern Ireland has been the emigration in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, very high emigration. And whereas the population was two to one in favor of the Protestants, the emigration was two to one in favor of the Catholics, it would appear. The data's not great. But certainly, despite this high fertility rate, 
the Catholic share did not grow until the 80s or the mid-70s. And this is almost certainly because of disproportionate Catholic emigration. And to a large extent, what was driving that was a very conscious decision on the part of the Unionist Party leadership, uh, who happened to be the employers as well, to nudge uh, disproportionate Catholic emigration, whether through housing policies or employment policies. And there are some well-known quotations. One of the prime ministers of Northern <laughs> Ireland told his colleagues not, specifically not, to have one around the... I wouldn't have one around the place, he said, of the Catholics of, of Northern Ireland, um, and that if we don't encourage them to leave, uh, they will be at our throats and they will be in the majority. So I think all sides have engaged in demographic engineering in Northern Ireland. And what I would say in conclusion on Northern Ireland is that whilst you can't simply say, had the demography been different, it would have turned out precisely differently. We don't know how it would have turned out. I think if we'd had a world in which there had been a six-county Ulster and there had been excessive Catholic emigration, but there had not been a birth rate differential and a two-to-one or even got to a three-to-one Protestant majority had been maintained, what we would have seen in terms of a settlement would have been very different. And equally, if we'd had a nine-county Ulster and no excessive Catholic emigration, uh, and yet the Catholic higher fertility rate and the populations have been more or less equal, again, I think it would have had a significant effect. I can't tell you precisely how, but I think uh, the balance of, of power, demographic power, has surely had an effect on the outcome of the conflict. So for my third case study, I looked at Israel and Palestine. Uh, and I think the contrast with Sri Lanka and Northern Ireland is that in the case of in those two cases, for sure, demographic engineering had an impact. You can debate how much. In the case of Israel-Palestine, I think you can argue that demographic engineering has been absolutely at the core of the conflict and shaped the world we see today. Um, and the first thing I'll talk about is Aliyah, Jewish immigration to Palestine and then to Israel after 1948. Uh, were it not for such immigration, the Jewish population of Israel would be about 100,000 today if, if it had stopped at 1917, as opposed to 6 million. So I think we can clearly say, see that the, um, the, whole, the whole geography um, and population would be completely different. Uh, there would be no Israel without Aliyah. This has been the lifeblood of the Zionist movement. Now, of course, there are other motives in encouraging Jewish immigration into Israel. Uh, it, it very often has been a, a, a life raft for people, and it's been, it's, in, in, it, it's been about saving people's lives. But at the same time, there's always been a very strong uh, idea, a Zionist idea, has been that, that the Jews should be a majority somewhere. And uh, Aliyah was the way in which, uh, which this was secured in Israel. Equally, I think um, fertility has been a very major factor here. And interestingly, unlike, um, unlike uh, Northern Ireland, the fertility story is interesting on both sides. So far as the Arabs are concerned, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, I think it's been very much like the uh, fertility story of the Catholics. That is, it's been higher than you would expect. It's, it's come down. It has converged. But it's happened later and slower than you would otherwise expect. And again, how do we, how do we put this down to the conflict? Well, we can't be absolutely sure, um, short of surveying women who, who have children and, and why they're having children. But I think we can again look at the behavior of other similar populations, be they Muslim or be they um, Arab uh, in surrounding areas, and compare and contrast. And just to give you one a piece of data, and you know, I could give you a two-hour talk on this alone, um, the uh, fertility rates and, and, and female literacy rates are often thought to be negatively correlated. The more uh, women are educated, 
The more literate they are, the less likely they are to have very large families. But take this as a data point. The early part of the 21st century, in the occupied territories in Gaza and the West Bank, almost no Palestinian women were illiterate. They have very high levels of education and social services. And yet, they had a fertility rate at that point of four and a half children per woman. And yet, if you take Morocco, at the same point, 60 to 70% of women were illiterate. And they had a fertility rate of two and a half, two and a half children per woman. So almost, in the, in the West Bank and Gaza, the fertility rate was almost double. And so whatever, however you look at the numbers, it, it was outstandingly high, even if it's come down a very long way. And again, if you look at the exhortations of the leadership, there are plenty of examples of Yasser Arafat and leaders of Hamas specifically calling on people to have larger families as part of their struggle against Israel. Um, but what's interesting in the case of Israel and Palestine is that there's also a story on the other side, that Jewish fertility is also exceptionally high. Now, when you take the imagine that the population of Israel, the Jewish population of Israel, is as socio-economically advanced as almost any in the West. And yet they have a fertility rate of three. Now, you may not think three is all that high, but bear in mind that there's almost no country in Europe or North America that has a fertility rate above two. And many have a fertility rate one and a half and below. Uh, so for this population to be having a fertility rate of three is quite extraordinary. And again, we can, we can look at other Jewish populations around the world, and they actually have very low fertility rates. Um, so that's one way of explaining it. Uh, one demographer said to me, of course, if we lived between, in a demographer in Haifa, if we lived between Belgium and Holland, the, the drive to have such large families would probably be less pronounced. Now, again, you could put it down to the predominance of the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, but they are not predominant. They are only 15 or 20% of the population. That's not enough, even if you're having seven or eight children, to have an enormous impact. And even secular people in Israel have two, two and a half children, which is quite high by international standards. So I think... Uh, as well as, as, well as the, the flow of Aliyah, we can see the fertility rates in Israel and in the occupied territories as quite significant in uh, shaping what's actually going on there. Um, so far as soft demographic engineering is concerned, certainly Israel, the Israeli census, divide, for some of its measures, divides the population in a way that can be seen as to its advantage. For example, for some of its data, it shows Jews and others, meaning the others being immigrants from Russia who've come in as partly Jewish but are not fully Jewish, are not recognized as Jewish by the uh, religious authorities, and then Muslims, Christians, Druze, which rather sort of consolidate one block and fragments the other. Having said that, that is a religious definition, and you have to cut the pie somehow. Um, more seriously, the Palestinian Authority has been accused of, of significantly boosting the numbers uh, in uh, the West Bank um, as part of their argument that Israel will have to withdraw for demographic reasons. Now, that's a hotly contested topic, and I don't really plan to go into it this evening, um, but certainly the accusation is there. But then there's a big debate, and that debate itself can be seen as a form of demographic engineering, I guess. Finally, in the case of Israel, there is the issue of the occupied territories, the frontiers. I think there's a clear argument that Sharon withdrew from Gaza in order to reduce the population of Arabs that Israel was occupying. And it was quite a bargain. 1% of the land for 30% of the Arabs seemed like a good deal to him. And then in terms of the barrier, which snakes its way through the West Bank to divide the populations, uh, I have a very nice quotation again from this demographer I met in Haifa, uh, who was very close to Sharon. Um, and Sharon called him up and said, 
To the world, Arnon, it is the security barrier. But to you and me, it's the demography barrier. So, um, as I said, you can't really imagine, without, without the demographic engineering that's happened, the whole conflict would be completely different. I think it's been absolutely fundamental. And I don't think that will surprise anyone in terms of Israel and Palestine, because we hear quite a lot of that. But what about the United States? That seems a very odd case. Um, what on earth is going on there in terms of demographic engineering? So I'm going to wrap up talking briefly about the US. In 1848, the United States was at war with Mexico. It occupied Mexico City, and the Congress was debating whether they should annex the whole country. And there were those who said, don't worry about the Mexicans. Yes, they're not our kind of people, but they will disappear like the Red Indians. They will drift into the, 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 the pages of history. We don't need to worry about them. And others said, we really don't want to incorporate these very large numbers of people who we don't like very much, who speak another language and have nothing to do with us. And so it was agreed to annex the northern half of Mexico, which is today's California, Nevada, Utah, uh, and so on, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, the largest expansion in the United States' history, larger even than the Louisiana Purchase. And again, I would call that a demographic bargain, because for half the country, the United States managed only to get 1% of the population. In other words, Mexico had not successfully occupied um, the, the northern half of the country with a population, and therefore it was quite easy to swallow. And indeed, the frontiers, so the frontiers of the United States, I would argue, were shaped by demographic engineering. And indeed, um, even the uh, integration of states into the US was a form of demographic engineering. So uh, the New Mexico was not allowed to become a member. It was a state. It was merely a, an administered territory until it had an Anglo majority. And elsewhere, if you look at the debate, should they annex Cuba, should they annex the Philippines, these were very much demographic decisions. Um, another example of demographic engineering in the United States is the immigration policies in the 1920s. Up to then, immigration had been pretty free in the United States. Uh, in, 1920, uh, in the 1920s, um, particularly the Johnson Act, immigration was controlled. And again, I don't have time to go into this in any detail, but if you want to know why immigration was controlled, let me quote you a senator from Maine um, who participated in that debate about controlling immigration to the United States. God intended the US to be the home of a great people, English-speaking, a white race with great ideals, the Christian religion, one race, one country, one destiny, settled by northern Europeans from the United Kingdom, Norsemen and Saxons. The Africans, Orientals and Mongolians, and all the yellow races should never have been allowed to people this great land. So that's the tenor of that debate. And uh, again, I would say that if you look at the population of the United States in the middle of the 20th century, it was very much shaped by those my immigration controls in the 20s. And I think it's perfectly clear that that was a case of wishing to manipulate the, uh, the, the immigration in order to control the shape of the population from a demographic perspective. Another interesting case in the United States is the Back to Africa movement, and I would say this was demographic engineering that failed. Uh, the United States uh, controlled Liberia. Liberia eventually got its independence. Um, only 17,000 blacks moved to, to Africa, so out of today 40 million, so it had no impact. And yet there were always three strands in the Back to Africa movement. There was the white liberalism, at least in the earlier days, and if you read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, it comes out very clearly. Um, we need to make rest we have wronged these people. We need to settle them back in their own country. 
there was a what I would call a black Zionism. We will never be accepted in this country. We will always be the subjects of prejudice. We must regenerate ourselves by returning to our homeland. But there was also a white racist element that wanted to be rid of the blacks and was very keen to settle them. And this Back to Africa movement really started in the early 19th century and didn't end until Marcus Garvey, who was a supporter of it in the 20s and 30s. Um, it failed, I would argue, because each of these forces had a mirror that was more effective. The white liberals uh, who believed in Back to Africa were always outnumbered by white liberals who thought that blacks could be integrated into American society. Um, the black Zionists were always outnumbered by those who said, no, we should stay and we can make it here. Or whether they said it or thought it or not, they certainly didn't get up and go to Africa. It was not a very attractive location. Um, and finally, the white racists who wished to be rid of the blacks were always counterbalanced by those in the South, particularly, who had an economic interest in their stay. So there were forces at work, but these were forces that were uh, outweighed by other forces. And finally, in the case of the United States, um, who are the core ethnic group, the core ethnic, as Eric would say? They might be defined as what WASPs, white Anglo-Saxons, Protestants, Anglos, whites. The term changes, the idea changes. But it could be argued that it changes very conveniently in order to uh, ensure a solid majority for however you define the core. And this would be a case of soft demographic engineering. The example I would give was that is that of the... Um, Irish Catholics who came in the 1830s, particularly in the 1840s and 1850s, when they settled in the cities of the north and the east, they were despised, drunkards, Roman Catholics, unreliable, undesirables. However, when they settled in the south, where there was a, an ethnic imbalance between blacks and whites, and the whites uh, felt a threat of being outnumbered, or when they settled in the west, in these new Mexican lands, where um, there was still a very thin population, there they suddenly became Americans. And therefore, I would argue that identity in America has always been fairly flexible. Who's in, who's out, has to some extent de de depended on the requirements of the, uh, of the establishment. So to wrap up, I would simply say that demographic engineering has indeed shaped the world we live in. Uh, it's generally done so in a way that has uh, been somewhat under the radar, has not really received much publicity, and it will continue to do so whether or not we pay it attention. But I do hope with my book it will get a little more of the attention that it deserves. Thank you very much for listening.